On the third Thursday of every month, pastors and church leaders from near and far gather together for a time of friendship, gospel encouragement, and ministry insights in the warehouse at the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. The following is from one such third Thursday gathering. Well, it's an honor to be here. It's an honor that Jeremy would ask me to come and uh, share uh, what God has done in me and how he's used uh, this book in particular that we'll look at this morning, uh, The Voice of the Heart. The thing I've enjoyed most about getting to know Jeremy is uh, his honesty with his own story and his honesty with uh, just a normal dude. That, uh, we've grabbed coffee and lunch uh, twice. And uh, man, I, I'm grateful for what his heart is for this city. His heart is for you, uh, men and women in this city. Um, the thing that has resonated with me about Jeremy um, that a lot of pastors I, I don't see, uh, he's got a heart for the gospel and the gospel for the city, not just a heart for access, but um, he's not small K-minded. He's capital K, kingdom-minded. I'm grateful for that. Uh, I'm super humbled to be here. I was just sitting as we were praying for you, uh, Deport, thinking, um, man, how, how I ended up here. And so I want to kind of, I've got an hour, so I, I do need to let you know who I am and how I got here. Uh, and I'll, I'll do my best, man. I'm kind of an emotional guy, uh, so I'll do my best not to be too emotional during this part or through um, the talk. I cannot promise that, can I, AC? AC is a trusted brother. AC, is, if you get a chance today at lunch, talk to AC. AC does all of our work with our men at Men of Valor. Uh, he gives oversight to all of our discipleship. So every man that comes out of prison, uh, that's our ministries. Men coming out of prison come live with us for a year. Uh, and this faithful brother of mine gets to pour into them. And uh, we've seen amazing transformation this year. Uh, and I believe it's uh, God's using AC in a powerful way. Uh, there's something about AC that, uh, man, there's very few men that I come in contact with that within 10 minutes, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's my guy. That is my guy. And uh, I've said that about AC since day one. And so I'm grateful that he's here. I wanted him to share, but when Jeremy told me I had an hour, I'm like, man, I, I've never done the eight feelings in uh, less than an hour. So I'm going to try to, we're going to go like speed right over the top um, of all of them. They're way deeper than I, I can get into uh, this morning, but if you have any questions, let me know. I did bring some Voice of the Heart Bible studies. Uh, I wasn't able to get the books, but the, the Bible studies, uh, you don't need the book to do the Bible study. They're, it's an amazing, amazing journey through the scriptures about our hearts. Um, it, it's amazing, so I can't recommend that enough. I, I think they're $15. Just pay what you want to pay, and uh, I'll, I'll uh, figure out the rest later with the, the authors. So the authors are two of my dearest friends, so um, they can give them away for all I care. No, I'm not losing money on it. They are. <laughs> well, let me uh, just share a little bit about who I am, how I came here. And the humbling part about it is uh, 10 years ago, uh, I ended up in Nashville uh, at a rehab center. I was a pastor in Southwest Florida at a church called Summit Church. I was uh, one of their uh, speaking, teaching pastors, and I was over all of our student ministry from college to middle school. And uh, I ended up train wreck in my life. Uh, that train wreck did not happen in a moment. That train wreck happened over a, a course of about 15 years. I was a middle school boy uh, and found pornography, but the pornography was a solution to my problem. The, these were my problem. And what happened in my journey was my parents abandoned me literally at an airport when I was 15 years old. Uh, they dropped me off at an airport and told me I was never moving home, and they sent me uh, to live with my biological dad, who I only met uh, one or two other times. So I didn't have a relationship with him. And I'll never forget when the lady swooped down and grabbed my mom, the lady, swooped down, grabbed my return tickets, and said, you'll never be moving home. I remember sitting at the counter bawling, and I walked all the way to the flight, and I sat in my seat, and I put my head in my arms, and then I rested on my older brother, who was stoic at the time, and I had this thought. I don't know if I said it out loud, but it felt like I said it out loud. I said, whatever I have to do, I will never feel this way again. This is too painful. It doesn't make sense. It's not right. And from that moment on, pornography became my closest ally, my closest friend. 
because it, it took away what I was running from. The hurt, the loneliness, the shame, the fear. It, it was my closest companion. And what pornography did for me was said, hey, man, I'll be all right even when I'm not all right. And it just numbed all these out. And then I came to know Christ my senior year of high school. And it was one of those moments like the church and porn, they don't go together. And um, they just don't. And I, so I began to see that. I went to Bible college and stuff. Man, if I just, just, you know the story. If I could just do this, if I could just do this, if I get married, if I get, man, it will just go away. And Satan used moments of what I'll say uh, white knuckling sobriety to let me believe, man, I got this. I really can do this. And then I got married and about three years in, uh, three months into my marriage, uh, my wife is a pharmacist and she works long hours. And I just remember those feelings coming back of abandonment and loneliness and fear and shame. And all of a sudden, right back to porn. And the porn began to increase to places um, that, man, I just never thought I would go to. Like it, wasn't, it became chat rooms that became other things that eventually I was within moments of an actual physical affair. And by the grace of God, by the grace of God, I say this, that my wife on a Saturday morning, August 8th of 2008, I walked into our TV room and she turned the computer around and she said, what's this? I said, I don't know what that is. And she said, well, there's only two of us living here, and I didn't do it. She said, I'll ask you again, what is this? I said, I don't know. She said, Todd, I'm going to ask you one more time. If you know my wife, she, she's not that stern of a, a, a woman. She's a very graceful, kind-hearted, sweet Southern belle from the middle of nowhere, South Carolina. And I thought to myself, uh-oh, she ain't playing games. And so I kind of confessed in that moment, and she, with her courage, said, either you go tell the elders or I'll go tell the elders. And my first response was, no, 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 we don't need to do that. Like that's, we, now it's out in the open. You and I can deal with it. She said, Todd, you are a sick man that needs a lot of help. And she said, again, either you go tell them or I'll go tell them. And I said, no, no, no. And I don't know how she did it, but she was sitting Indian style, and somehow she levitated off the ground. Her, I, don't, I don't know how she stood up at the speed she stood up very gracious and kind and started heading to our front door and I was like oh this woman's serious and I said okay I'll go talk to him and for the next 48 hours I was at my dear friends my elders and just man it was like a spotlight like these lights are bright but those lights were brighter and so for the next 48 hours they were just asking me questions and caring for my soul and then one of my friends took me to his office and elders said you've blown up your life man and you need help we're going to get you help. And so they called a man here in town called Nate Larkin. He wrote a book called The Samson and the Pirate Monks. Phenomenal book if you haven't read it. Please read that book. Um, it's, one of the, it's the book that God used for me to get into treatment. Uh, it's called Samson and the Pirate Monks by Nate Larkin. He, he's an amazing, godly man. I would recommend every pastor in this room get him to come to a men's conference. He'll blow. Uh, God uses him in a powerful way in his story. And so God used that connection with our church. Uh, and then I'm grateful for uh, men that um, respond quickly and then make promises too soon. So one of the elders said, uh, they talked to Nate Larkin, and he said, man, you got a real live one on your hands. Uh, that's not really what you want to hear about yourself. I'm like, that ain't good. And so he said, I got the place for him. And so literally, uh, not too far from here was a rehab center called Center for Professional Excellence, led by Dr. Chip Dodd that this book is and this lecture is based off of. And uh, my church, by the grace of God, made a commitment they were going to do whatever it took to get me healthy and, healthy and restored. Well, what they didn't know was that treatment cost $55,000. And yet, who paid for it? I didn't. I paid $2,000 of $55,000. My church split, covered the bill. And then they covered me for the next six months, paid all of my insurance, paid all of my expenses, flew me home when I needed to fly home during treatment. And so the story is about my wife and about the grace of God through a church. Because as you know, pastors and porn and preaching and porn and ministry and porn, once that comes out, you blackballed. And yet this church graciously and kindly cared for me. But what I learned in treatment was this. Uh, that porn was not my problem. 
Porn was my solution to my problem, and then porn became my problem. And so for the 15 years, and then when I came to know Christ, my, my battle was against pornography, but my battle was not what needed to be won. What needed to be won was my heart. I had a heart problem. I was taking an external thing and trying to cover or medicate an internal problem. Turn with me to Genesis. It's exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 3. What time do we need to be done, Jeremy? I don't have a clock, so. Oh, i got to hit the fast forward button. So in Genesis chapter 3, it's what Jesus is asking us today. He'll ask the, the woman and the man after uh, they sin. If you remember the story, just uh, as you know the story, they, God had created everything. God said everything was good. He said the one thing that wasn't good with that man was alone. He created Eve. And then in chapter 2, verse 24, he says this, Therefore the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his and his wife were both naked. That's emotionally, spiritually, physically naked before one another, one with one another. And it says this in the text, and they had no shame. There was no shame. There was no shame that separated them. I would contend with you this morning that shame is the, the, the foundation of all the other feelings. And out of shame, what we do with shame comes all the other seven feelings. And said they were not ashamed. Then you know what happened. The serpent came craftier than more than any other beast, and he deceived the woman. And the woman ate of the tree, and then she gave the fruit to the man. He ate it. And then what happened? They all of a sudden felt shame, the text tells us. All of a sudden, their eyes of the heart become awakened to something they had never experienced before, shame and guilt. That's what the text says. And what did they do in their shame and guilt? They ran from God, they hid from God, and they covered themselves from one another and ultimately from God. They hid from God and covered themselves from each other out of shame and guilt. And then in verse 9, it says this, verse 8, excuse me, we'll get to verse 9. And then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, but the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? We know God was not asking a GPS question. He knew exactly where they were. How do we know that? Because he was right where they were at. He found them. He knew them. He knew where they were at. And he asked the question, where are you? He's asking them an emotional, spiritual question, not a physical question. He was wanting them to be honest about their fear, their shame, their guilt, their loneliness. He was asking them this. And I would say to you this morning that God is still asking us that question. Every moment of every day. And it's how we answer that question with ourselves before God and before one another that we'll be fully known. How many of us in the room want to hide these from ourselves, from God, and other people? And we'll do whatever it costs to hide. Like, their porn was fig leaves. Their drugs was fig leaves. That, that's what we do. That's how we hide. We hide with food. We, we hide with all these external things to cover ourselves, to cover this, because it's too painful. Because in that moment when they ate of the tree, they had felt something they never felt before. It was called separation from a holy God. That's what sin does. We know that. And so all of a sudden they felt, they felt abandoned by God, though God did not abandon them. They abandoned God. And so for the next thousand, two thousand pages, we see man and woman trying to cover themselves and hide from God. And that's the great redemptive story that we're going to talk about on Sunday as pastors. A God that came to deliver us from ourselves and to restore our hearts. But how do we do that? We start with honesty. I would contend with you this morning these things, that our feelings are the truth about who we are. I'm not saying our feelings are always true or always right, but they're true about who we are. And we don't like to look at our mirror, ourselves in the mirrors and tell the truth about ourselves. And God forbid we tell our wives. God forbid we tell our closest friends. 
I was talking to a, a friend. I was talking actually to Tim yesterday at a coffee shop. And I was talking to him about my fear and shame coming today. I told Jeremy this a couple weeks ago. Like, this is a very fearful, shameful thing for me to do, to sit up in front of pastors. I'm a pastor, and I'm like, man, the, these guys, what my fear and shame, what Satan was doing was speaking to me. They don't want to hear from you. And I, I told Tim yesterday, and I wasn't joking. I was like, man, I'm not coming tomorrow. And he kind of laughed it off. No, no, I'm serious. But I was able to say out loud what was going on internally so I could be fully known. And what I know about Tim is Tim took my heart. I took, I know AC knows my heart. I know Jeremy knows my heart. And I know these guys, he, like what he said, he said out of what we talked about a few weeks ago, like he knew I was fearful to come. But I got known. And being fully known, I was fully cared for. But what does my story say? If I'm fully known, I'll be abandoned. If I'm fully known, I'll be rejected. If I'm fully known, I'll end up on a plane going to Texas to God knows where to live with an abusive dad, a drug addict, an alcoholic, and a sex addict that doesn't care for me. So what do I have to do? I got to care for myself. And so for me, the journey over the last 10 years has been this. I want my feelings to be true, and I want my feelings to be honest, and I want my feelings to be exposed. Feelings are three things. They're passwords. You know, like on a computer, you got to put the password in to get into the computer. If I'm not true with the honest password, I'll never get into computer. If I give you this computer, only I in the room know the password. And you can type in every password you think it could be, but only I know what it is. You'll never get into my computer. Unless you're some kind of computer freak. But it's what God is saying to us. The password to my heart is, where are you? The passwords, the second one is this, they're lanterns. You know what a lantern does? It only shows us about five feet in front of us. But our feelings will show us both the past, the present, and the future. And it's what we do with the lanterns, what we do with God's exposure to our feelings about the past. Like I had to go to treatment and deal with the past. I didn't go to treatment to deal with the future. I wasn't going to treatment to deal with what had just happened on Saturday. I was going to treatment what happened back at 13 years old. I, I, when I got there, God began to take me deeper, deeper into my heart that I forgot about when I was sexually abused as a second grader. Now, how do you forget that? Because it was too painful. So my heart knew it's too much pain and my heart also knew you're not gonna care for me so I'm not gonna reveal that to you till I know you're ready for you to care for me. And it happened six weeks in the treatment that I remember I was sitting with other men they were talking about their story and I was like, holy moly, I was sexually molested as, as a second grader. Well, well, no wonder I hid from those. The last one I would say is this, not only are they passwords, not only are they lanterns, but those lanterns get us to a doorway that our feelings are the key to the doorway. They will unlock things in our hearts that have remained hidden and locked for a long, long, long time. And it's there where we get healing and it's there where we get freedom. And so in about the 30 minutes I got, I'm going to fly through these eight feelings. I'll, what I'll do is I'll tell you what the feeling is. I'm going to give you the gift of the feelings and the impairment of the feelings. We'll start with hurt this morning. Hurt says this, and again, this is all out of the book, so this is not my, these are not my ideas. These come straight from Chip Dot. I'm stealing his material. So this is what it says. Hurt expresses that I have been wounded. That's what hurt says to you and me. We have been wounded. It's giving credit to where we come from and what has been done to us. And here's what I know to be true about every single person in the room this morning. Every one of us has been hurt in some way, some shape, or some form. How do I know that? Because the gospel tells me that. I've come to heal what? The brokenhearted. All of us in the room have experienced broken hearts. We have been wounded in deep places. Some people say it this way, some, uh, which I would say is true. Some people, you have a story like mine. You've been sexually abused. That's big T trauma. That's big T hurt. You've been abandoned like me. That's big T. But, but here's the deal. Some of us in the room, and I'm not discrediting this, 
I'd rather have your story than my story, little t trauma. There's death by machete and there's death by paper cut. A lot of us in the room, we can't look back and see these big monumental things in our lives, but if we begin to get honest with ourselves, there's all these little t traumas that we've been hurt by. You know, the stupidest kid, oh, I'm done already. That ain't good, man. We like halfway through hurt, Jeremy. You know, that's what my kids, I hope, never learn. Sticks and stones will, but what's true? Not that. We know and remember the hurtful words more than the broken bones. Because they cut to a place that is so deep and for so long. And so I would continue with you. Hurt says this, we have been wounded. But here's what we must know about our hurt. We must be honest with ourselves about the hurt. But we also must know who to go to with our hurt. You see, with my hurt, my pain from my abandonment, I went to the people that abandoned me. You think they care about my hurt and pain? But who do I continue to run back to? The people that did the abuse to me. You, you want to know why women that are, come from battered husbands go back? Because they think that that husband will ultimately care for them. You and I would like, that's crazy. But you and I do that emotionally with the people that have hurt us the most. So we must run to people that care for us. If you have a toothache, where do you go? You do not go to a physician. You go where? To a dentist. If you have a broken bone, you don't go to a dentist. If you have bad eyesight, you go where? To an eye doctor. We must go and we must know people to run to with our hurt. How do we know who to go to? We go to those people who have been hurt and who have experienced God's grace, forgiveness, kindness, and redemption. That's what makes you and me as pastors so important in the local church. We must deal with our own pain first so that we can then go and meet with men and women who have not dealt with their pain. Why do we have such a jacked up church? Because you and I, men, are not willing to do the work to get healthy, to help healthy people. We can only give what we have gotten. How was I, I mean, I led a group of college kids for three years and thought, man, these people aren't getting healthy. And then I looked in the mirror, I'm like, no wonder they're not getting healthy. I'm not healthy. I'm putting an expectation on them that I'm not willing to do myself. So are we going to be men and women that deal with our pain so we can deal with the pain of others. And here's the deal with hurt through emotional wounds. Emotional wounds can only be healed through healthy relationships. You cannot heal yourself from the wounds of other people. I would say this to you. It can't just be between you and God that heals the pain either. Because your heart must know that you were created in the image of God for one thing, and that's relationship with him and relationship with other people. So healing will come through God, but God will use people to bring healing. And how terrifying is that for us who've been so wounded? I call it the emotional highs. Now, I'll let you close, but you ain't getting my ball. Be like Barry Sanders. Close, but you ain't getting me. You think you got me, but you ain't got me. And so the gift of hurt, when healthily expressed and dealt with, will be courage. And you might say, what do you mean courage? Well, I'll use this example. What I know to be true is I got an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. Eight-year-old girl, four-year-old boy. I know every dad says this, but my daughter is beautiful and I'm terrified out of my life for her. But what do I want to do? I, I want to protect her from what she, I know is coming. But I also know I can't protect her from everything. And I won't be able to protect her from every hurt that she experiences. And I won't be able to protect her from every hurt some Yahoo boy does to her. But what I do know and what I can do is be in it with her when she comes home crying because her boyfriend broke up with her. 
And I can tell her, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. It's not about you. It's not about him. God is doing something. I don't know, but I'm with you through it all the way to the end. But if we don't have that in our life, I'm not the safe place for her in her life. She's going to begin to eternalize something must be wrong with me. Because why would he break up with me? It can't be something wrong with him. It's got to be something wrong with me. But as a dad, I get to say, no, no, it's not about him or you. And she has a safe place to process her hurt that then gives her the courage to go back out and date somebody else and eventually find the man that God has for her. I know my daughter will be hurt. And here's the deal. I know my son's going to be an idiot and he's going to hurt a lot of girls. And I got to be with him as he experiences what it's like to sit with a woman who's hurt. And not say to her, it doesn't matter, but walk with him through the pain, his own pain of trying not to deal with her pain. And so it gives people courage when we deal with hurt. Because here's what's true. God's created us to be in relationship and relationships hurt. Anyone been in a relationship that doesn't hurt? Then you've not been in a very healthy relationship. They hurt. So we must go to people that will bring healing, and healing comes through relationship. If we don't do that, we will always lead into resentment. Resentment says this. We begin to blame people for our pain. It's my parents' fault. It's her fault. It's his fault. It's my wife's fault. I don't have to take responsibility for my pain. I put the responsibility on them, and then I put it on them to deal with my pain. If they don't deal with my pain the way I want them to deal with my pain, then I resent them. When I resent them, I have power and control over them. Anyone in the room? Resentment is a powerful, powerful drug. Because it says, I'm now in control over everything and everyone, and I won't be gotten to which always leads to, which every one of these will lead to isolation. Just FYI, all these in impairment lead to isolation. How come we see that in 1 Peter chapter 5? Where does the great deceiver want us so he can devour us? It's in isolation. We have an enemy, a roaring lion waiting to devour us. It's a picture of a lion going after his prey. If you've ever watched... Uh, planet earth lions don't go after the herd they ain't stupid they isolate the weakest link and then they devour them it ain't pretty well that's what satan's going to do when we don't deal with our feelings he will isolate us and devour us that's what porn did for me it isolated me and i got devoured I think I'm on track, Jeremy. I've just looked at nine minutes. I think, I, I think I'm good. Let's keep going. Next one is loneliness. Loneliness tells us this. It tells us that we're created for a relationship. Loneliness reminds us of what it says in Genesis chapter 2. I've created them in what? My image. What is God's image? God's image is all about relationship, relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God's always been in relationship. And what did Adam and Eve have with God that no one other than Jesus Christ had? An unadulterated, never before seen experience, intimacy with God. Because they are, them and Jesus are the only three human beings on this planet that were without sin. And so they had an intimacy with God that you and I, apart from our salvation and apart from glorification, we'll never experience here. And so I would say to you, when they ate the fruit and they separated from themselves from God, they felt extremely alone and abandoned. Because they knew they had this thing in their heart that said, this ain't the way it's supposed to be. Something's off. And then what they do? They tried to fix it to get back into relationship with God. Man, he can't see us this way. We gotta hide from him, we gotta fix it, we gotta cover it, we gotta do something because this ain't right. And this ain't right, so we gotta do something. And they made a mess of things. But healthy relationship will always lead us 
to healthier relationship with God and other people because that's how we were created. You cannot be anything than an emotional, spiritual being created for intimacy with God and other people. That's in your DNA. That, that's, not, that's even apart from your salvation. That's in every man, woman, and child on this planet. That's in their DNA. That's how they were all created is to be in relationship. But man, Satan, Satan hijacks that. And so I'd say to you this morning, when we experience true loneliness, we will experience the gift, which is intimacy. Or another way to put it is, see into me. Like, man, true intimacy with my wife, it goes well beyond sex. There's this heart connection. There's this emotional connection. There's this spiritual connection. Man, I long for her to see into me, to be fully known by her. And it is terrifying. So terrifying to be fully known by her. But it's the thing I crave the most is intimacy. It's something all of us in this room, we crave to be seen into. The, the question of every man's heart, every woman's heart, every child's heart is this, do I matter and do I belong? See into me, see me for who I am. It will lead to our greatest need, which is to be fully known. All of us deep down, we want to be fully known. Think about it as a child. How many times you say, Daddy, look at me. Daddy, look at me. Daddy, look at me. Mommy, look at me. Look what I'm doing. It might be the silliest thing, but all that kid wants is his validation to be seen and known. See me, see me, see me. And then what happens is when we're not seen and not known, kids do a multiple of things. They, they either wow out and go crazy to be known or they go away. See into me. That's our greatest desire. That's our gift is intimacy. When I know I'm most lonely for Jenny, Jenny is when I desire her the most. My wife, her schedule is super crazy. She's a pharmacist. And so she works seven on and seven off. And, and about day four, man, there's this earning, there's longing, this craving, man. I miss Jenny. And I see her at night, but I don't get to see her at night. Like a text message just doesn't do it. 144 characters, that doesn't cut the bill of intimacy. And she's so exhausted when she comes home from work, I still don't get to see into her. And man, I do everything I can for the next seven days to be into her. I, and sex doesn't have to be on the table. Intimacy with my wife has always trumped sex. That, that's like a cherry on the top. But being fully known by her and me fully knowing her, man, it is amazing, is it not? You know, those moments, they don't happen every day, but there's those moments you're with your wife and you're like, man, man, we are, we're together. There is oneness the way God talks about. That's intimacy. The impairment of intimacy is apathy. Apathy said this, I don't care. It's more powerful than hate. If you have hate for somebody, there's still a twinge of love for somebody. Like the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. I just don't care. I will not be affected by you at all. I'm cutting you out, cutting you off. Like I know there's still some hope in my relationship with my parents because I, I still disdain them, but I'm not apathetic towards them. Man, if I get to a place of apathy, I will check myself back into rehab. Because I know I'm, at, I'm about to go into utter isolation. Now, the word in the Webster Dictionary says this about apathy. It says to have no concern or care for another person. You ever been apathetic? That's a powerful tool, too. I love apathy because I get to be in control. Apathy, if that's not dealt with, will always lead to evil and harm. What does Jesus say? It's not about the actions, it's about the heart. 
Like most apathetic people are murderous people in their hearts. That's who he's talking about in Matthew chapter five and six. The apathetic people. That was the Pharisees. They, they were apathetic. We see them as rageful and hateful, and, but they were just apathetic people. I'm not going to be gotten to and no one's getting to me. Well, I'm going to set myself up with all these rules and regulations that no one can get to me. I'm going to live the perfect life, but no one's getting to me. And they lived in utter isolation. So impairment of loneliness is apathy, which will then, again, lead to more and more and more isolation. Next is sadness. Sadness express, expresses to us what really matters to us. Our sadness puts a value on things. What do I truly value? You'll know what you truly value by the le level of your sadness. If that thing is taken from you, you'll know how much it, you valued it by how many tears you shed over it. Three examples of this. Anyone remember like the toy of the century when they were growing up, could not wait for that toy? Like, anyone, like any takers, like what was the toy that you wanted more than any other toy growing up on Christmas morning? Any takers? Yeah, Nintendo 64, anyone else? NES. NES. Stretch Armstrong. Stretch Armstrong. <laughs> the aircraft carried G.I. Joe, that thing was amazing, all seven feet of it, that thing was awesome. That thing was awesome. One of the greatest toys ever invented. But now think about it. When's the last time you really thought about that toy? Other than me just bringing it to your mind. Man, but if you go back and that thing broke, man. And nobody's still playing on that original NES or, right? You're not still having that hooked up to your TV. It's like, you do, well, you've probably got the refurbished new one, don't you, Jeremy? Right, but, but like, like when we really put value on something, it's like, man, it's a toy. Like, well, the next level is this. I got a dog that's 15 years old. Been with me longer than my wife has been with me. And he's getting really old and really sick and really feeble. Man, it's really, really sad to watch. And I'm going to grieve that dog for a long, long time when he is gone. Because that dog has been my closest companion. Because he never cared about porn, I'll tell you that. He didn't know what porn was. He just knew he had God that took him out, fed him, and let him run around. I'm going to grieve that dog. I'm going to grieve the heck out of that dog. And I'll probably grieve that dog for a long time. There's a level of sadness there. There's another level of sadness. I will never, ever stop grieving. One year after treatment, I've been praying and praying for my dad that I went out to live with in Texas. God, save him, save him, save him, God, save him. Whatever you do, God, save him, save him, save him. Well, prior to that, he had a major relapse and was found in a hotel room, blitzed out of his mind, never recovered. Ne never knew really who I was other than the high school kid he could somewhat remember. So I was praying, okay, God, now that I've gotten clean, now that I've gotten sober, just, man, please, God, restore him, restore him. I want to have these conversations with him. I want to know where I come from. I, I want to know all this stuff about him. We had enough awareness about where he was and who he was and what was going on that in October of 2009, he shot himself. I'll never recover from that death. Every birthday, my kids, my, man, when my daughter was born, you know who I wanted to call first? And he'd been dead for years. I wanted to call my dad. Man, when my son was born, who do I want to call first? My dad. And now my kids are getting old enough and start asking me about my dad. I grieve it all the time. And there's going to be a day my daughter gets married. I'm going to have to grieve that day because her other grandparents are all going to be sitting there, God willing, but there's going to be one spot open. 
My son's going to get married. So I'll grieve that to the day I die. How come? Because, man, it's not okay. But, man, my sadness for my dad says, man, he really matters to me. I was just talking to a lady last night at church. She was married for literally 65, 70 years since she was 16 years old. That's the only man she'd ever known her whole life. And suddenly God took him from us, took him from her. And she said, I still cry today. I was driving home crying about him about Easter. And all my family's getting together. But man, I'm going to miss him because I love him and I can't wait to go see him. I said, Miss Donna, you grieve and you continue to grieve. If you stop grieving, I'm sending you to a counselor so you can get back to your grief because that man mattered to you. And what happens when we don't deal with our sadness? It leads us to self-pity. Jerry, I'm not sure I'm going to get to all of them, man. That, that's my way of inviting myself back. Can I do that? Okay. Uh, can we pause at anger? Because I'm just like, man, I, I don't want to blitz through the last. The, the last two are really important. I feel shame now. Like, oh, man, he gave me a task. I couldn't do it. Leads to self-pity. Self-pity says this. I've done everything that I know to do to get out of my sadness. I can't get out of it, so I'm now going to make you deal with my sadness. You ever seen the movie, I have kids, of uh, Inside Out? You know, sadness in that movie, how she walks around droopy, mopey, and everyone tries to caretake her? Well, that's what self-pity looks like. You ever been around a self-pity man? Like, you want life more than they want life, and you're going to, like, do everything you can to get life, and they are thriving off of it. Self-pity. The demand that life isn't supposed to be this way, and I'm going to demand that you take care of it. And what happens in self-pity is this. When you don't fix me, I'm going to resent you. And when you, uh, I can't have power over you through resentment, I'm going to go to apathy and just not care about you because you're not caring about me. What's leads me in utter isolation? Let's go to the next one and last one. Again, Jeremy, sorry, man. Oh, uh, Acceptance. So it's that idea of it's not okay, but it is okay because God's in control and I'm not in control. And I'm always going to be sad, and yet God's always going to be in control. Is what the great reformer said, for God's glory and for my good. Somehow, and I've seen it in my life, my dad's suicide has been for my good and for God's glory. How's it been for my good? Because I can sit with men and women who have experienced suicide from a parent that I wouldn't have been able to sit with and really have that level of empathy with someone. Thanks for asking. Sorry about that. I'm trying to go too fast and blitzing over it. The next one is anger. Anger is the feeling that shows us what we care about, not what we value, but what we really care about. The things we're passionate about. That's the gift is passion. I think Mel Gibson's title of his movie about the Christ, The Passion of the Christ, is spot on. Because the crucifixion shows what Christ was most passionate about. Let me tell you this. It wasn't about you and me. His passion of the cross was not about you and me. The passion was about the glory of God. And the result was about you and me. It's seen in uh, Luke chapter 19 where he goes over and he's got this anger uh, for the temple, right? And he flips over the temple. I think it's Luke 19. I might be wrong. He's got this passion for the house of God. He's a passionate man. His passion took him all the way to the cross. His passion showed everywhere he went, I am the king, and I don't have to tell anybody. He was a passionate man. I would contend with you this morning, he was the most passionate man to ever walk the planet because he had something that mattered to him more than anything else, and that was the glory of God. And it was to redeem mankind. Those two passions are what we celebrate on Friday tomorrow and what will come back and celebrate because his passion was the resurrection is the resurrection man without without the resurrection we're just as screwed with the crucifixion but it was his passion to glorify god through his resurrection to redeem man that said i will conquer death because they can't do it 
some passion about raising myself from the dead to redeem mankind back to my father so that what? All these people can give more glory to God that wasn't given them to him before. It's about the glory of God. That's the passion of the Christ. So I'd say to you, what are you passionate about today? Here's the other part. And we see this in the life of Christ. What we're passionate about leaves the most, leaves us the most vulnerable and exposed. Because if Christ was not passionate about God, he would have given up a lot of times. I would have. Let me rephrase that. That first someone tugging on my beard and spitting it out, I've been out. I don't know about you. That first name call, I'd have checked out. I definitely would have checked out the, the, the lashes. I probably would have checked out before that when they started ripping me and having me butt naked in front of them. I'd be like, see, I got to get out of here. But it was his passion. You know, when we're passionate, it brings out our greatness. Anyone watch a huge basketball fans in here? Any Michigan State fans in here? Let's go! Oh, my. Let's go! Okay, we got one at least. All right, so we got one guy. Man, he wasn't the most talented dude on the floor, but man, he was the most passionate dude in the tournament was Cassius Winston, right? If you watch him play, like you're like, man, he, I mean, you look like, go look at Pistol P. You ever seen Pistol P? Man, he looked like a dork out there, floppy shoes and all, but that dude played with passion. He was a great player because he lived and operated in his passion for basketball. And nothing was going to stop him. He was determined to be a great player. Athletically, he was not a great player. Either one of those two guys. And he didn't hold a candle. That, that guy for Michigan State, he didn't hold a candle to Zion Williams. I, I mean, it's not even close. Zion Williams is a freak of nature. 6'8", 265. I mean, can jump over the backboard, not, not touch the backboard, jump over it. He's a freak. But man, you watch the heart of that man, Cassius Winston, he wasn't going to lose. It was oftentimes, man, he put that team on his shoulders and carried them. Without him, they're, they're a mediocre team at best. His leadership, his passion, his desire, his drive, his anger, that was what made him a great player. But here's the impairment is depression. Whenever anyone comes to my office to see me for counseling and they say to me, I'm coming for depression. I say, oh, so you're angry. They look at me like I'm crazy. And I begin to walk through, man, there's something in your life that you're passionate about that you can't get to. So you're depressing your anger to get to what you're passionate about. Of course you're depressed. Because too many people have said to you, you can't do it. You won't make it. You won't do this. You won't do that. So they begin to believe those lies. They take their anger for what they want to do in life. And they say, everyone around me says I can't do it. So I better depress it because I won't achieve it. And if I don't achieve it, then no one's going to accept me. So I better depress this and go after something else. Which leaves a lot of people super depressed. It's depression. You're pushing something down. What you're pushing down is the anger for life to live and live fully, which God created us to do. And so we're all passionate men in here. How often does Satan use other people to depress us and our anger for things? If you're a pastor and you haven't experienced depression, then I'd say you're not a pastor. Because you and I have dreams, we have aspirations, we have desires, we have longings, we have hopes. We, we have these things that God's planted in us and everyone around is like, man, that ain't going to work. And we begin to believe that lie. And in believing that lie, we got to depress something. Like, oh, I guess, now I, if everyone's saying, I must be the fool. So we lose our anger. We lose our passion for what God's called us to. And you want to know why so many guys are out of ministry? Because they lost their anger for ministry. So I, again, continue with you this morning. For you, man, this next year, your life is going to suck, bro. I say that because I love you and I care about you. You're going to go to Virginia. You're going to have all these dreams and all these aspirations, but you're going to have enemies that, man, it can't happen. You can't do it. 
It's not growing fast enough. Something's wrong with you. And your anger that's taking you there next week, if you don't have men around you that surround you, you can talk about your anger and what you desire and you hope for. And you got some guys in your corner that say, man, keep going, keep going, keep going. You will be a depressed man in a year. I think, and this is, I'll get on a soapbox and I'll close. I think solo guys parachuting into islands to plant churches is the stupidest thing we've ever allowed to happen. Because these guys come out of seminary, they have this fire for the Lord and fire for the gospel and fire for lost people, and they get transplanted by themselves. And man, all of a sudden, all the naysayers come out. And they got nobody walking with them in their corner day in and day out said, man, it's going to be okay. Let's keep on, let's keep on, let's keep on. And in closing, I'm reminded of what Moses did and his passion and his anger. Remember he held up the rod? He didn't hold it up by himself because he had a desire and a passion that all those people would cross. But he knew, man, my arm's going to get tired. And my, even my anger might not hold this rod up, so I need someone on my right and on my left. Passionate men surround themselves with other passionate men. Are you surrounded by godly men? Are you surrounded by godly women that will hold you and encourage you? Because it's going to be hard. How do we know that? Most of the Bible is about hard. There's only two chapters in the front and two chapters in the back. The rest of it, man, life is tragic. But where we stop and put a period, it was never meant to be a period. It's a comma. God is good and faithful and kind to us, but we must live the way he lived, an angry, passionate man. I'll pause there. Let me pray for us this morning. Again, sorry, three minutes over. God, you are good to us. You are kind to us. I pray as we jump into this that you would lead us and guide us and strengthen us. I pray for our conversation at lunch that if there's men and women in this room that need to get honest, that you'd give us um, vulnerability to do that today, that we would leave here free, on fire, for you, but it comes through freedom. It comes through honesty. There is hope, God, for every one of us. If there's anyone in this room this morning that feels hopeless, that's not the gospel. The gospel shows us hope. But getting to hope takes work. It takes honesty, and it takes help. And we cannot help ourselves. We can be honest, but we cannot help ourselves. We're desperate for you, Lord Jesus. As we gather tomorrow for Good Friday, I pray that you would awaken our hearts um, to the bad news about the good news. The bad news is you had to die. But the good news is you raised from the dead so I would not have to live dead and defeated. That's the good news. Lead us, guide us, take us on a journey to our hearts to be fully known by you and others. I pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. We pray to thee, our God.